Is the global economy working for all of us? Or should we be strengthening local economies and communities? Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. Welcome back. It's episode 75. If you're new to this podcast, thanks for downloading. I hope you enjoy listening. We've had great feedback from the last few episodes, and today I'm talking to another brilliant, committed changemaker. Helena Norberg-Hodge is a pioneer of the New Economy Movement and recipient of the Right Livelihood Award, also known as the Alternative Nobel Prize, the Arthur Morgan Award and the Goy Peace Prize for contributing to the revitalisation of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. Helena Norberg-Hodge is also an author and her most recent book is Local is Our Future. This book connects the dots between our social, economic, ecological and spiritual crises revealing how a systemic shift from global to local can address all of these seemingly disparate problems at the same time. Helena is also the author of the inspirational classic Ancient Futures and producer of the award-winning documentary The Economics of Happiness. Helena is the founder and director of Local Futures and the International Alliance for Localization and a founding member of the International Commission on the Future of Food and Agriculture, the International Forum on Globalisation, and the Global Eco-Village Network. So have a listen, and I'll jump back in afterwards with my reflections on our conversation. So Helena, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. And perhaps I could start by asking you to give us an overview of what Local Futures is all about. Well, Local Futures is all about a very, very big area. We are so big picture that we deal with almost everything in the world. And it's because I ended up in this remote part of the world called Ladakh in the mid 70s, and also in Bhutan. And both of these were areas that had not been affected by the global economy neither colonized nor developed. And my eyes were open to the impact of the global economic system. And it led within a few years to my conviction that we need to strengthen local economies worldwide. So for more than 40 years, I and my organization have been focused on that. And we've been focused on doing that um, around the world, on every continent. We're a tiny organization, but we're, we have impact and contacts and networks on every continent. And in doing the work of strengthening local economies, we are also strengthening 
cultural self-respect, the regeneration of biodiversity, more localized food systems, and also community energy schemes, a whole range of activities that are needed to strengthen local economies. And we also deal to, you know, with a, a lot of people who are primarily focused on critiquing the expansion of the global economy and looking at its impact on human well-being, on democracy, and of course on climate, on the planet. So we, we cover a very, very broad area in terms of the topic and we work globally. And one thing we did a couple of years ago was to launch World Localization Day. And we're collaborating with yeah, hundreds of groups around the world. And uh, we recently launched a localization action guide that hopefully can be helpful for people who are interested in this type of activity. Mm. Well, we can certainly put a link to that in the show notes. And um, I was just making a note. I can't remember if I mentioned this when we spoke ahead of the podcast, but a group in the UK called Totally Locally that works with local towns to help help them yeah we've been in touch with them and collaborated with them yeah great great stuff and so one of the things that you're particularly exercised about is um is what's wrong with our food system and the way it's developing you know the the global north model that's being exported if you like elsewhere and the kind of um i guess lots of issues around food could you unpack that a little bit for us I would love to. Um, I would also urge people to look at our very short little video, only about three minutes, where we contrast the global food economy with local food economies, plural. We are showing that in this global food economy, which is a highly integrated, centralized, top-down corporate system, unfortunately supported by our governments, subsidies for everything from research and development at universities to infrastructure, also to the imposition of regulations at the local and even national level, while global businesses, global corporations are being deregulated through free trade treaties. We have a system where our governments are systematically supporting the separation between us and the source of our food. Absolutely systemically and systematically, we are getting food from further and further away and food is being imported and exported, the same product, beef in, beef out, milk in, milk out, Water in, water out. Just recently, 20 tons of bottled water to Australia from the UK and about 20 tons of bottled water from Australia to the UK. It's mad, but it's logical according to the way that GDP is measured and the way that governments are wedded to the notion that more global trade is the way to increase GDP. In Mm. the meanwhile, at the local level, from around the world, um, you know, on every continent, there's a, a resurgence, there's a constant flowering of initiatives trying to reestablish 
healthier food systems where we shorten the distance from farm to table and where people in the West are also waking up to the need to support so-called peasant farmers or smallholder farmers in the so-called third world or in the so-called undeveloped parts of the world where hundreds of millions of farmers are struggling to raise awareness about the fact that these trade treaties are destroying them and that these subsidies for the global infrastructure and for global trade means that imported food costs less than local food. It's uh, nothing to do with efficiencies of scale. It's nothing to do with supply and demand. It's to do with top-down control. The global food economy is the biggest contributor to climate change, to mountains of plastic, to destroying the life in the soil, to bringing in junk food that is destroying the biome in our gut along with destroying the soil. It's, it's, it's a thoroughly destructive system. And it's now escalating because corporations as blind organisms, it's not really so much about bad people, good people, it's about bad policies and blindness. So in the meanwhile, at the local level, the more localized systems are the best way to reduce climate emissions, the best way to restore biodiversity. And most importantly, if you take any two bits of land and on one, you do diversity, ideally as diverse as possible, ideally including animals. Maybe it will be ducks eating the weeds in a, in a rice paddy. Maybe it will be just a goat eating waste that human beings don't eat, but producing fertilizer and milk and all kinds of other valuable benefits that increase the productivity. So diversity on one piece of land, monoculture on the other, you will always be able to produce more if you go for diversified production. The word that's very popular these days is agroecology. In other words, it's, it's ecological, it's adapted to local ecosystems. From my point of view, the more important language we need to be focusing on is that we need to be doing everything we can to support local food systems worldwide. They need to be wedded to shorter distances and to supporting smaller diversified farms. The biodiversity on the farm, farm the agricultural biodiversity, also helps to increase wild biodiversity. It reduces the plastic, it reduces the emissions, it reduces the needs for refrigeration. We're talking about massive, multiple benefits. Another huge benefit that we see, particularly in the West, is that as people start connecting across food, across soil, you start seeing a healing among depressed people, prisoners, juvenile delinquents, because we're in touch with one of the most fundamental, productive, meaningful activities that we spend most of our time engaged with in our entire evolution. Cut yeah. off from the 
of our food cut off from the soil, cut off from the land, doing meaningless work where we don't even see the end result of what we do. That's unnatural. It's been a very short leap in our evolutionary development. We can see around the world the healing that happens around community gardens, local farmers markets, community-supported agriculture, permaculture initiatives, slow food initiatives. The healing benefits on people as well as ecosystems is so inspiring. Mm. And, and part of well, one final thing I want to say, I'm being very long-winded, but a final thing I want to say is that for me, the most inspiring thing and most inspiring movement I know of is the young people who are returning to farming at that level with that diversified, localized, community-supported agriculture. There's a wonderful, um, really inspiring movement of young people really seeing a future and engaging in something that is thoroughly healthy and meaningful. Yes, and I think locally, I'm seeing some some examples of that. Um, I live in the um, in the uplands of the of the UK, and um, I'm so glad to hear that. Yes, so it's it's. Um, I guess I'm still seeing a a bit of a split though, in terms of what the younger farmers are looking at. Some of them are still following the industrial agriculture model and going you know um bigger and more machinery and and more intensification but others are definitely yeah. moving towards a much more regenerative um mixed diverse farming and realizing that less can be more you know less less animals grazing means less inputs means less work means less housing and all the rest of it but certainly not all of them and um, I guess you know that brings me on to why mixed farming is is misunderstood in many circles, possibly because some of the propaganda that comes out from uh, big ag and the, the seed companies and fertilizer companies and so on. Um, but there are you know people people object to mixed farming because of. Um, you know they they use um, the production of methane methane as a uh, as a barrier um, that veganism is is better. Um, you know there are lots of people arguing that we could just go completely plant based um, and that would be fine. What what would you say to those arguments? Well, first of all, I'm very sympathetic to people who don't want to kill animals and who are appalled by the conditions in these animal factories. They are absolutely horrific. And tragically, we do not hear about the voices that are trying to get us to distinguish between these hideous animal factories, cruel to the animals, hideously destructive to the land, very bad for our health. And the diversified farming that was part of traditional agriculture for generations, for thousands of years, actually, in almost all traditional systems, in every indigenous culture, people ate animal products. And there are quite a lot of, uh, there's quite a lot of evidence that those that particularly animal fat is actually very good for our health. 
there's also records of big corporations using advertising and persuading doctors to promote vegetable fat instead of animal fat in order to be able to sell trans fats as healthier than animal fat. So it goes back quite a long time that big business realized that if they heated up fat, they could keep it on the shelf much longer. And they started marketing this pure white Crisco, uh, you know, probably about 40 years ago, as so much healthier than animal fat. Now, this type of corporate um, propaganda, basically, again, we have to remember, it's not individual people. We're talking about entire institutions that are in many cases more powerful and more they're wealthier than nation states we're talking Mm. about enormous corporations with all kinds of specialists very narrowly focused and many of the scientists who would be involved in creating the changes for genetically modifying food and and you know thinking genetically modified food is better for our health or creating you know the trans fats so that food can be stored on the shelf, they were led to believe that this was in the best interest of people. And there was almost no research on the health impacts. So we're talking about a lot of blindness here, but as a, an end result has been disastrous. And right now, from our point of view, there's been a lot of money promoting a plant-based diet and veganism because in this global food system that is so based on corporations gaining control and ensuring that smaller businesses, smaller farmers, smaller towns even, can't compete with their wealth creation, which is linked to driving most farmers off the land. If this continues, we will be in a world where people will have been driven into AI-driven cities and we will be surrounded perhaps with a little bit of rewilding. And then the farming will be done primarily by robots. Now, the men and the institutions that are pushing this, first of all, it's, it's almost machine-like, the pushing in this direction. There's a link between the growth of mega cities like Beijing with now, uh, what is it, about 60 million people. There are 18 satellite towns with about 2 million. and So the total conglomeration is about 60 million. Now, this monstrous growth is entirely a consequence of this corporate system, which is driving people off the land into doing meaningless factory labor for a high-tech industry where creating video games and uh, consumer goods that are completely not not only useless but harmful mm. uh, the whole gaming industry you know it's it's highly addictive it's linked to serious health problems and mental problems anyway I'm uh, going I think I think you're absolutely well. right and and the kind of yeah. um you know addiction seems to be one of the tactics that more and more companies are using whether it's addiction to types of food through that magic ratio of salt sugar fat um, that gives you a great big dopamine hit and your subconscious then wants more or addiction to you know gaming gambling 
um, fashion, all that kind of stuff. It seems seems to be a tactic used by more and more big businesses. And what you were saying about the cities um, brought to mind something in a um, a book I'm reading. <coughs> excuse me, by uh, Karen Higgs. Um, it's from back from 2008 um, called Collision Course. And in that she refers quite a few times to, to what Karl Marx um, first talked about, what he called metabolic rift, which was the rift between the rural areas where food was being grown and, um, you know, animal manure and so on was being created. And all those nutrients from the manure um, were, were kind of, you know, being uh, being missed. But also the the nutrients were going into the cities from the from the food. And, um, you know, when when people ate the food and then um, produced their own waste, those nutrients were just being washed away into sewage systems and then into the sea and weren't being returned to the land. So there was this kind of, you know, rift between the metabolism of of um the rural areas and and the cities, um, and so you know even back then, even with somebody who wasn't a uh, a scientist, um, and I don't think he he didn't make a big thing of that as a as a kind of sustainability issue. Um, he just kind of noted it, um, and also what 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 came to mind was um, you know the film Soylent Green, um, <laughs> which and I think there's even there's even one of these. Uh, plant-based alternative foods called Soylent, and it's as it's you know are they, <laughs> I just can't can't understand why they would call it that. But um, yeah, maybe I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And so, yeah, very interesting about Karl Marx. I didn't know that, but but certainly the growth of the city, you know, again in this modern era, started of course with Dickensian London and the mm. enclosure. So people were pushed off the land mm. to become cheap labor. And in the so-called third world, they were being pushed away from diversified production for their own needs to go on to huge monocultures to produce for the traders. You know, the cotton, the tea, the coffee. Mm. And, and the, and so, the cash, cash food crops as well. And, and that's one of the myths that I think comes up. You know, people, people think... That if they buy out of season uh, fruits and vegetables, you know the Kenyan green beans and so on, um, they think they're doing a good thing to help the local economy. Um, exactly. But actually, that's that's another myth, isn't it? Really. Exactly. We we actually address that in our film, The Economics of Happiness, where we try to show the bigger picture about the benefits of strengthening local economies and the problem with the global economy. And yes, there's been a lot of propaganda telling us that we're helping the third world so-called by buying their products, including their food. And that, um, you know, unfortunately, even many of the people in the whole fair trade movement don't look at the bigger picture and don't realize that the best thing they could do is to help people strengthen their own local economies and that we need to do the same thing back home. Yeah. And of course, everything can't be localized. But when it comes to food, which is something every person needs every day, we just can't stress enough how important it is to create genuine food security, to have diversified production of food in the region, really as close as possible. And mm. if we could just encourage a shift in policy 
almost overnight we would see the huge benefits of doing that. But in the meanwhile, what we try to do in local futures is to encourage people to get on with creating the local food systems wherever they can. And, you know, you were saying before how some of the young people are still going for the conventional model, go often going into debt to buy machines that's been part mm. of the whole model, and following the conventional economic dictates and you can't blame people. In fact, for me, all of this madness we're seeing, is it really is a systemic craziness that has been escalating for a long time. And I think the really important thing is that we all take a moment to step back and look at the bigger picture and then try to find ways to reach out locally to start creating the solutions that are going to be beneficial right now but are also absolutely essential for the long-term future. Mm. And a foundation in healthy local food system is the highest priority. And I, I can also just say that once you are talking about building healthy local food systems, you're talking about cleaning the water. You're talking about the diversity that restores the soil, that restores, you know, restores the health of the soil and is producing genuinely healthy food. Because even the term organic has been co-opted, you know, mm. so that large-scale global organics are not what we think they are. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm a member of the um, the Real Bread campaign, and um, they're campaigning against the, with the UK Parliament uh, against what they call sourdough, which is supermarkets selling bread that um, is labelled as sourdough. Um, yeah. but it, but it's not you know it might have a little bit of sourdough culture in there but it's not sourdough bread so from a practical point yeah. of view yeah. sorry helen go ahead. no go ahead from a practical point of view what can people do to help this flourish locally you know whether you live in a in a city um or a rural area what what could you do tomorrow um to help tomorrow. help this start I would say the first thing you could do tomorrow is to look in your area, whether you're in the country or the city, for a local food initiative. See, you know, do you have a local farmer's market? Go there, do as much of the shopping as possible there, but it's about more than that. I believe if people understood why things are going so wrong in the world, what lies behind not just climate change, not just even the pandemic we're facing, but even epidemics of depression, very frightening increase in cancer, really an epidemic of cancer, you know, epidemics of depression. I mean, we're, we're facing multiple crises. We can offer a whole wealth of information about how getting involved in rebuilding local food economies can be the very best, most systemic thing you can do. So I want to urge people to do that, not just as a shopper, but also as an activist. If you have any extra time, if you have any extra money, see what you can do to help strengthen this movement. You can come to our website, localfutures.org, to get ideas. We have a series we call Planet Local. We might actually be highlighting an initiative near you. If you have questions, we're also happy to help. Um, because, yeah, like I say, it makes me very sad that there are so many people who are spending a lot of time dealing with single issues 
all of which are valid, you know, whether it's about concern about gender and, you know, the rights of gay people, whether it's the concern about the depression I just mentioned, about poverty, about democracy, about climate change in particular. If they could understand that we are, we must now shift to a systemic view and systemic solutions that deal with multiple problems simultaneously. Otherwise, we're just not going to get to where we want to. And we see, in fact, I have studied the way in which people in the corporations, personal friends of mine, who are some of them still friends, have been part of getting involved in the environmental movements and social movements with genuine concern but their influence and their funding and their influence on government has taken us down a path of narrow, specialized, single-issue perspectives. And one of them we talked about earlier, veganism, that are actually leading to a splintering, to anger, separation, when they are not focused on genuine healing, systemic solutions. There is a way forward that really does get simultaneously to healing ecosystems and people. Mm -hmm. So first step would be to maybe inform yourself a little bit more about that. Our website, localfutures.org, is a very good way to do that. And then look in your area, join a group, change the I to a V. Don't it has to be a big group. You don't have to go out into public meetings. It could be one or two colleagues or friends, but it's so much better once you start saying, "What can we do?" rather than "What can I do?" Yes, and and I guess and, I guess um, even with yeah. even with your family, you can have those conversations, can't you? About and and um, you know, I think thinking not just about local, but thinking about seasonal food as well, because the supplier might be local. At our farmer's market, you know, there's there's an independent greengrocer, but quite a lot of what they sell is is imported. So it's thinking about, you know, what's what's seasonal, because then it's much more likely to be grown locally and moving away from those, um, you know, green beans and raspberries and strawberries all year round. Um and uh, yeah, the thing I, that always it, drives me mad, which is, you know, but pe people demand that. Well, I was at, at Tesco when that was first introduced and people weren't demanding it. It was Tesco's way of um, resolving some of the um, supply chain forecasting issues of, um, you know, how do you, how do you get Easter right when it could be chucking it down or it could be really sunny? Well, the easiest way is to um, make sure people demand the, f the same food, whatever the weather conditions um, and especially <laughs> when our governments are subsidizing the fossil fuels and the infrastructure exactly. Exactly. and making transport artificially cheap. But also, you know, you said also seasonal, and I would just say another way to put that is genuinely local. Mm, because okay. what we mean yes. by local is looking from the seed to the plate. Yes. And yes, absolutely. It's not just about a local shop. Because, mm. you know, Sainsbury's also markets itself as your local corner oh, shop yes. and, and those those pictures of yeah. and the and the fake farm names and things that they put yeah. on their, their meat yes so um although yeah um i'm having to um i've i've not shopped well me and my husband have not shopped at supermarkets for over 10 years um but um 
uh, we were talking earlier about um, me doing, uh, me and my sisters doing a bit of caring for my parents, and so my parents have an online supermarket delivery. So, <laughs> so I'm being sort of re-educated in in the ways of supermarkets. So, um, Helena, yeah. thinking back on on um, you know you, you've got um, uh, you know an awful lot of experience in all of this and in in creating movements for change which of your values do you think helps us move towards a better world and why values you see i don't think it is so much about values as people are saying i think it's a um it's so much more about big picture awareness I believe that most people today, particularly in the Western world, really value a better relationship with others, more meaningful work, a better relationship with the environment. Most people would prefer food without chemicals at a reasonable price. They would love to see local farmers, local shops thriving, but they're not being helped to understand why that's being undermined and how What's going on? What is it that's hitting us? Why are we facing one crisis after another? From my point of view, this is what's really lacking is that big picture. Mm. And I feel, you know, very, very sad about the fact that not only does this big corporate system, often with well-intentioned leadership, get involved in shaping the direction of our government, shaping the, <laughs> the shape of the world, basically. Mm-hmm. And not only are they undermining ecosystems, creating climate change, toxic pollution, increases in cancer, but they are blaming you. They are actively promoting a view which brings it all back to the individual making, particularly in the West, but but elsewhere too, the individual blame themselves. The dominant narrative is saying, human beings, you know, you, you know, you, you've been told about climate change. You've been told about all this and why aren't you changing? You're just carrying on in the same old way. You're obviously impervious to information. You don't care. You're selfish. You're greedy. You just want more and more. Well, just like you were saying, people didn't actually ask to have green beans in the winter. People, I've never seen a single demonstration <laughs> for having a new supermarket. Mm. I have seen countless demonstrations against having supermarkets. But the narrative that keeps influencing us has us forgetting the bigger picture. And we end up trapped in this very depressing situation where on top of everything else, we end up blaming ourselves and we end up feeling, oh my goodness, I should be doing more for recycling and, and, I, sh- you know, and I should be spending more time with my mother and I should be doing this and doing that. We're not even looking at how we're trapped in a system that has us running faster and faster just to keep a roof over our head and at the same time blaming ourselves for this rat race. It's just really the most important thing we can do is to step back and look at the bigger picture. Yes, I think you're so right. And that reminds me of an article uh, somebody shared with me last week. I can't remember the name of the author, but I'll put a link in the show notes and I'll send it to you afterwards, Helena, um, about um, the great awakening that he thinks is happening now 
Um, you know, it's kind of it's the the great resignation that you might have heard about with people deciding they're not going to work in that that job anymore. You know, COVID's awakened things um, in people. And so they're saying that's just part of a of a much bigger picture, which is this great awakening. Realize how you know, realizing how um, altered our our lives have become over the last few decades, and how that's moving further and further away from what gives us meaning and you know, true um, uh, you know, happiness and and connection. Um, yeah. So yes, yeah, so I'll I'll send you that link. And so. Um, is there somebody you would recommend as a future guest for the program um, to, to perhaps talk about um, food system and the circular economy or or some some other um, thing you think could be interesting for our audience? Well, yes, I would recommend. Well, Colin Tudge, I think, is if you mm-hmm. you know Colin, who organised the Oxford Real Farming Conference. Yes, and Jyoti Fernandez from the Smallholders Alliance. Um, Nelson Medzingwa from the Smallholders Alliance in Zimbabwe. Yeah, quite a few I could recommend. But I'm trying to think. I do feel there aren't enough people talking about that bigger picture that that sees that it's this global economic system dominated by global traders. But that's what we have to look at more clearly to see why things have gone so wrong and how that's been linked to urbanization Mm. and how that in turn has only happened because we've destroyed the farming communities and the smaller cities that were linked regionally to the productive land use. That destruction of smaller towns, smaller cities, small everything in the localization movement, we're talking about the way that governments use taxes, subsidies, mm-hmm. and regulations to benefit global corporate monopolies while punishing and taxing and overregulating every other business. And you know, even national scale businesses are being punished, taxed, and regulated while the global monopolies run free. That's the main reason behind most of our problems. Yes, I agree. And it's and it's it's shocking how unseen that is. Um so I th- yeah. but I think it sounds as if there is um lots of mm-hmm. uh, lots of resources on your website, the local futures website, that would help people start to um, you know, get get into that and, and start to think about what it means for them and what they can do. So, Helena, how can people find out more and get in touch with you and Local Futures Project? Well, well the website is localfutures.org. I'm told it looks a bit old-fashioned, so we are going to be updating it. But, but what it is is full of resources because we've been at this for 40 years working in the industrialized as well as non-industrialized parts of the world. So we have a lot of experience, a lot of materials. We did a film called The Economics of Happiness, Mm -hmm. which tells this bigger picture story in about an hour. I really hope people will look at that. And we've had regional conferences around the world by that name. We have fabulous speakers from around the world, all recorded and on our website. And then as of two years ago, we launched World Localization Day. We have amazing voices and programs from all over the world 
making visible and celebrating the worldwide localization movement. We managed also to get support from Noam Chomsky, whom I studied with, and the Dalai Lama, whom I've had many meetings with in the past, and people like Russell Brand, Jane Goodall, um, Brian Eno, Gabor Mate, and uh, you know some other quite well-known people mm. trying to help with those voices to make this more visible because it is virtually impossible to get out in the media. Yes, I, I yes, and I think I think you're right. There's a there's a wide range of of people, you know, deep thinkers getting uh, much more interested and activated about this and i think you you're right that we can all do more to to start our own tiny local rebellions and um you know start to to push back against the system and the way the way i've been thinking about it over the last um couple of months is that all of us as citizens we're the ones who could create the market for a better system um and it's really up to us it's only it's only our unrest with the current situation that's going to push politicians into doing something different um, and that's going to support the, the small businesses, the local businesses, that the ones that put the money into the back into the local community instead of, you know, offshoring it and paying out fat bonuses. We're the ones who've got to, to make this happen. You know, without all of us doing something, um, it just isn't going to happen. So, Helena, um, that was really interesting. Um, some really insightful you know um thoughts and and uh uncovering some of the um the myths is, is useful and i think it sounds as if there are some great videos on the website so we can um put specific links to those um and including the link to the film the economics of happiness which is now on my list to watch so helena um thank you very much and i look forward to seeing what's going to happen in in 2022 um i'll send you the article on the great awakening and and um hopefully that uh, that commentator is seeing a a movement for change that we can uh, we can all help to accelerate so helena thank you very much well, thank you so much. And apologies for monologuing too much. <laughs> I have got so much experience, I can go on for too long. We could have talked for, for longer. I'm I'm really interested in this. And, and there's so much more that we could unpick. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe another time. So we should stay in touch. Thanks so much. Yes, for I'd love to. Doing. Thanks, Helena. Thank you. Bye-bye. What really stood out for me is that globalisation is only working for the few with the power, with the influence. It's not working for the vast majority of the population, whether that's in industrialising countries, the post-industrial regions or developing economies. We're being fed a story of trickle-down economics, that cheaper is better, that growth is essential. But it's a story designed to maintain the status quo. We're being fed stories that consumption, having more, is what will make us happy, successful and safe. But it's all designed to further the profits of big businesses and help politicians claim they're succeeding because GDP, gross domestic product, is growing. As Helena said, we need to see the bigger picture and get clear on these complex, interconnected series of problems, wicked problems. Once we understand the root causes and that much of what we do undermines our ability to thrive on this planet, 
we can start to think clearly about the solutions. And local food is one of those simple solutions. Connection with soil, with nature, with the process of growing food is essential for our health and well-being. Helena talked about programmes where prisoners, delinquents and people with mental health issues start to heal, to do better, once they're connected through food. I mentioned a book called Collision Course by historian Kerin Higgs, who's also written about the history of our consumer culture. And near the end of the conversation, I mentioned an article that talks about a great awakening. It's called Awaken Sustainability, and it's by Raz Godelnik. I've included a link to both of those in the show notes. So I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to our guest this week, Helena Norberg-Hodge, founder of Local Futures. And thank you for listening. You can find out more and follow Helena on social media, and you can buy Helena's books, including Local is Our Future, online. I've included the link in the show notes. Or, even better, order it from your local independent bookstore. Thanks to Marjana and Jordan from Local Futures for making this episode possible. And you can check out the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. If you want to find episodes on a particular circular economy strategy, or for a market sector, or specific countries check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at www.circulareconomypodcast.com and every episode includes an interview transcript. Don't forget that you can help make the circular economy happen too with the choices you make at work and in your everyday life. Buying pre-used, keeping what you have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. And you can help spread the word, talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two or buy a copy of my award winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook. How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. The book takes you through the concepts and practicalities with lots of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice and circular economy resources at www.rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. Thanks so much for listening to the end and if you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe and we'll see you next time. <music>